I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. <clears throat> You're listening to the Sans Pants Network. Home of comedy, <laughs> culture, <laughs> adventures, and ghosts. Hi everyone, welcome to Bookish. I'm George DeMarellis. This is a show where we ask you what's your story and what does it say about you. Today on the show we have a creative influencer, book reviewer, photographer, and all-round lover of words... She's best known for her successful Instagram account, Bubbling Books, where she shares her love of YA and adult science fiction, fantasy, and nonfiction books. Tamsin West, how are you? I'm really well. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you on. I uh, love having a fellow, sometimes this show I have a run of like not as bookish people, and they're all great, but uh, it's nice to be able to have some, which I've got a feeling we're going to be a little bit more uh, geeky potentially in this episode <laughs> than I get to be in some of the others. So I guess a bit about you, uh, your whole focus is basically looking at these different uh, avenues of like photographer, stylist, blogger, and influencing, I guess, uh, through a literary lens is kind of how I kind of view it. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Well, that's, what's that like, how it started? Yeah, for sure. So I feel like the main thread that connects all of the things that I do is my like lifelong and abiding love of stories. I think that's really the thread that connects everything from my photography to my blogging to the very literal sense of like loving books and wanting to review them and wanting to connect with other bookish people. But it also kind of connects to my business, which is called Mine and Maud, where I like sell nostalgic journaling stuff and I teach workshops on creative journaling which is really just like a way of telling your own story but all of this really started with babbling books back in I feel like it was 2014 or 2015 um, I moved to Melbourne from regional Victoria I didn't really know anyone and I joined a book club because I was like I don't know how to make friends as an adult mm-hmm. um, <laughs> yep. but I love books so a book club seems like a great idea so I I joined this book club called The Last Book Club on Earth. And unsurprisingly, given the name, we read exclusively post-apocalyptic dystopian fiction. It was awesome. I'm still really good friends with some of the people that I met through that group. But like one book a month and like one evening a month to talk about books was just not enough. (laughs) And I was working for a nonprofit organization, um, I didn't have a whole lot of colleagues, pretty small organization, but I had one colleague who was like a super book fan too. She read completely different genres to me. She read lots of romance, um, which wasn't something I'd read before, but like we just bonded over our obsession with stories and books. And um, she was actually the one who introduced me to Bookstagram. She came into work one day. She's like, I found this thing um, on Instagram and people post pictures of books and write reviews. And I'd actually had, I don't think I've ever told this part of the story. I actually had a book blog (laughs) in like 2008, something like that. When I was in my last year of high school at the beginning of uni, um, I actually had a a dedicated book blog where I wrote like five, six, seven hundred word in-depth like book reviews of of every book I read. It was intense and no one read it. Like I'm talking (laughs) like zero traffic. Yeah. And so I, when she told me about, I'd long discontinued it by that point. So when she told me about this like bookstagram, Instagram thing, I was like, oh, I know, but it was like heaps of work. And like, I didn't really want to write like 
you know, these long form book reviews that also no one ever read. Mm-hmm. Um, but she's like, no, 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 you take photos and like, you just put like a, a caption or like, you just like write something. And I was like, mm, not super convinced, but she was like, yes, yes, come on, let's do it. We'll do it together. We'll both make one. So we started a, a Instagram accounts, each of us to share like photos of books. And at the start, I was so confused by the whole thing. But I've been learning a lot about digital marketing at the same time. So I was like, you know what? I'm just going to give this a go. I'm going to try and see if the things that I've been learning about marketing and building community online can actually kind of be tested out with the things that I love about books. And yeah, I mean, it kind of (laughs) worked. Yeah, I just posted about the things that I loved and experimented with photography and the copywriting side of writing captions and things like that, but really focused on building community, connecting with other people. And yeah, it kind of grew organically out of that very slow start. It did take me a while to get on board with the whole idea, but uh, I eventually like grew to love it. Mm. I mean, it's a like, firstly, this is such a modern thing. I know, like, even though it's now these days, Instagram is considered old hat, but like, it's such a modern experience what you're having there in the community you're building and even like the obviously opportunities that would have opened for you both like, uh, like just experience wise, but also even probably economically as well from this small little thing. Yeah. So I guess the, the, the one thing you're saying there's community a few times, and I think mm. I really want to talk about that because I, 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 I quite read a bunch of lots of different things. And um, I remember reading somewhere once was talking about social media specifically and the comparison of social media and what a lot of companies get wrong. Uh, essentially, mm. is thinking of social media as media. And I think the quote was like, social media is to media what an eggplant is to an egg. Like, they've got the <laughs> same word, but they're just not the same because, like, it's not about producing, just pumping out one-way things. It's about that community engagement, building that and talking and really, like, that's the actual, that's the whole thing of it, essentially. Um, so did you have, like, that was the experience you kind of had and that's what you built out? Yeah, definitely. Um, th- that is the perfect way of describing it. I just really think the people that you see succeeding on social media are the people who are totally invested in the success of their community. Like they care about the people that they engage with and it's a hundred percent a two way street. And the times when I've felt most connected to my community has been the times when babbling books as I guess a, a concept has flourished the most. And um, I was looking back, actually, was I was trying to decide what book we were going to talk about for this podcast. And, so much pressure um, for you, I know. It was really hard. <laughs> um, but one of the books I considered was Neil Gaiman's uh, very first novel, actually, Neverwhere. And very early on in Babbling Books kind of lifetime, I hosted a read-along. And on my blog... I think we divided the book into like four or five sections and each week we read a section as a collective. And I think there was about 20 or 30 people who read along with me sticking to the schedule. And I had like discussion questions, five or six discussion questions after each section and people were commenting. There's over 150 comments on the blog that are still there today of people discussing the symbolism, the themes, the characters, like all of this like really in-depth and very creative discussion um, of people engaging with each other and experiencing this book either for the first time um, or like me as a a reread. And I just remember that sense of like community and connection and like joyfulness, like that reading can be such a joyful and connecting experience because, I mean, it's a solitary pursuit, right? You sit down with a book or you listen to an audio book or whatever it is but you're also connecting with the person who wrote it. You're connecting with other people who um, have also read that book or maybe even just people who like thinking about the same ideas and topics. Like, you know, maybe you and I haven't read all of the same books, but we can talk about the themes and ideas that have come from those books that have influenced how we live our lives or um, how we think about the world, all of those kinds of things. That's what I love about reading. I mean, yeah, it's it's like... It's such a part which people don't appreciate much. And it's one which I've personally like could do more of, honestly, like that, the fact that, yeah, when you read something, just to share it with people and get their perspective and have that whole debate. Cause like, it's surely it would also open up stuff which you never even thought of and maybe could shift your opinion in some ways. You're like, ah, oh, that's actually more of, like, I agree with that. And that's something I hadn't considered, which yeah, probably I could do more of, to be honest. 
we probably but, all could. Yeah. <laughs> but it's uh, nice to read just for fun too. Like there's mm. nothing wrong with that, like to read for the joy of it. Yeah, but I just feel like it's almost adding more joy is all. That's that's what, and which I'm always for mm. when it comes to reading. And Neverwhere, great, great book. It was a. It, it, I feel like it's very much clearly he's one of his his first in some ways. Like yeah. you can cut. It was weird, and I always wonder whether I'm saying that because I know that it was his first. But I always feel like, oh yeah, this is him learning the steps, and it's a bit simple in some ways. But like, beautiful book, and makes you just love London. It does. Um, it's, it's so much. It so does. And I think one of the things that I absolutely adore about it is, like if you think of it as his very first book and I'm a massive Neil Gaiman fan, like I've every, I have an entire shelf on my bookshelf that's dedicated to his books, but you can really see a lot of the kind of parts of his writing or his personality really shine through in it. When you think of it in the context of his later works as well, which is something that is why I keep going back to it over and over again, over the years and getting something different out of it every time. But I guess in fantasy, urban fantasy, which is what it is, People are really starting to get on board with the idea of diversity of in terms of gender or race or sexuality, all of those things. But all of those things are in Neverwhere, which was written in the 90s. Like, you know, just because that's just, I think, how he sees the world. I mean, some of the language and nuance is probably not the way that we would talk about things exactly now because, you know, conversations have moved forward. But the 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 principles of it are there you know there's people who are of different races there's people of different genders um, and different gender identities outside a kind of binary there's you know people with different sexualities that's just like not relevant or commented on or you know part of the plot but like they're there and they exist because they are part of the community and I just really appreciate that Anyway, I think about that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, look, it's it's amazing. He started early, and that's like amazing to see there. You know, let you know we should start from your book, book of choice, and then go from there. I feel like so your book of choice, which I know would have been very hard for you as a as a as a renowned book fan. So you've got a lot riding on it. But your book of choice for today is my brilliant friend by Elena Ferrante. So it was really difficult to choose honestly, but I absolutely adore this book. Translated from Italian into English by Anne Goldstein. And I think you could call it a modern classic. But yeah, I'm assuming, have you read it? No, I haven't. So, you, okay, you don't have to be, there's a lot of books in the world. I thought we were doing an inclusive space here. <laughs> Your face was slightly judgmental there. <laughs> I, was just, I was just asking the question. No, no, maybe I'm paranoid. It, no, it, look, it looks great, but do you want to give a description of the story? Yeah, for sure. So uh, there's so many things to talk about with this book, but it's uh, My Brilliant Friend is the first of four books in the Neapolitan novels quartet. And there's not that many books, which I think you would call like historical or literary fiction that exist as series, especially in English. It's quite uncommon. Usually literary fiction is a standalone, but this is four books that center around the life of one woman and follow her from her like very young childhood. I think it's kind of like kindergarten or primary school kind of age in 1950s in a very poor neighborhood on the outskirts of Naples. And it follows her all the way through her entire like life and career and um, evolution right up until the very end of her life is kind of covered in the final book. But it's all set up from the very beginning to have this kind of beautiful arc and shape of a life because it's really this intense friendship between Elena and Leela who are the kind of two central characters and though their lives like diverge and converge at different points throughout the four books when they're closer or further apart emotionally or physically they kind of orbit around each other in this intense and very fraught friendship but it's such a hard book to describe. So the first book covers their lives up until they're around about 16 years of age, I think. It's kind of hard because all four books, for me, kind of blur together. Yeah, yeah. But I think My Brilliant Friend actually does stand alone quite well if you're not ready to like commit to reading all four books because they are quite long. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like it's a, it's a decent chunk of book. There's so many things that I love about it. I mean, that focus on female friendship, this really intense, like granular kind of look at a neighborhood, just one neighborhood in a poor area on the outskirts of Naples in this like 
specific time period of 1950s and looking at like what was going on in post-World War II Italy with this tension between like the emerging communist movement with the kind of hangovers from fascism and people's attitudes towards that, but also their just day-to-day struggles to just live their lives and survive. And, um, you know, there's kind of gangs, I guess you would call it. I've forgotten the the, the Italian um, kind of way that they refer to it. But there's, yeah, there's all of this politics involved in like who knows who, who marries who, who shops at which shop, who controls which thing. Mm that's in this like really intensely tight detail and this beautiful prose um, that just completely sucks you in. And there is so many characters and I'm not usually a person who like gets on board with heaps of characters in a novel. <laughs> I'm just like, come on, give me three characters and that's all the names I can remember. And Although you're a fantasy fan. That's, that's <laughs> the, the standard run of the course. Yeah. <laughs> so in my mind, in my mind, if there's more than like four characters in fantasy, I just hear this noise that goes like, when the- <laughs> <It's definitely laughs> when uh, I- yeah. <laughs> I definitely know them as the shape of the word rather than the sound they are in my head. I, I can agree with that. Yeah. 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 Definitely that. But like, I feel like I know all of the people in the Neapolitan novel series. Like, I feel like I know, you know, her siblings, her parents, her cousins, her husband, her children, her husband's family, her like all of these people are so vivid and so distinct. Like they're the detail of the lives and how they interact with each other as well. Um, and the way that the story flows and wraps around itself and around itself because it opens at the very beginning of the first book with the disappearance of Leela. But she's disappeared in the the present day, I guess, the late 90s or early 2000s, something like that, of when present day is for the novel. And um, Elena is quite elderly at this point, and and so would Leela. So it opens with this, and that's the first little hint. And I think it's only one chapter. It's just like a small snippet. And then so Elena's then starting the story from the very beginning. So she says, well, to figure this out, I have to go back to the start because there's no way that Leela would want me to tell her she's never going to let me finish telling this story without barging in. So I'm going to tell this story until she interrupts me and I find her. And then you just kind of don't hear that perspective, that final like present day narrative voice until the very final book. What? Yeah. So it's, you get, that is impressive. Okay. It's, it's so meticulously crafted. Like it's just a work of genius. And I think that's why so many people are such huge fans of this series because when you read it, you're just like, I feel like I'm standing in the room with something incredible. Mm. Like I'm, I'm standing in the room with literary greatness. Yeah. That's always, yeah, it's always an amazing experience and I can, seems like a good choice. <laughs> you pass the literary test, I guess, to some people. I don't know. <laughs> no, it sounds amazing. I guess uh, because yeah, I'd read about the first book and how uh, it intertwines both the personal story of them with the yes struggles of Italy itself. And I'm sure it's mm. not, like I'm guessing it's relatively subtle. It's not too heavy handed <laughs> like with that stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's I, I wouldn't say that it's heavy handed because it, the only like the way that you would say that it's intertwined is because their stories are kind of and their lives are representative of the struggle rather than, you know, it going off on tangents about this, that, and the yeah. other. And they experience in different ways, I think, that the, the lives of Leela and the life of uh, Elena, they diverge and they go in completely different directions. They have very different experiences of class um, in particular, really frames how they experience the world. But their experiences as women and the barriers that they come up against and the opportunities that they also have and the the worlds that they live within, within their neighbourhood and within their community are also, I think, representative of bigger kind of conversations that were happening. And they really experienced the feminist movement through their own, like, different stages of their lives and their careers and through motherhood and all of those different things. Yeah, it, it's it's very difficult to describe how like subtly and beautifully it is uh, put together. But yeah, it's amazing. But I think one of the things that I, I think is like the most interesting about it is that no one knows who Elena Ferrante is. <laughs> so it's a pseudonym, well. <laughs> yeah. right? I'm sure you wanted to talk about this, but I 
for me, that's part of the enjoyment of reading the books, right? Is it's a pseudonym, she's anonymous, and there's a lot of speculation about, you know, who she is and, you know, that given the meticulous detail and the emotive way that she writes about this particular area in Naples, that surely she must have lived it. That it would be very, very difficult for someone who had no lived experience of that particular era and that particular place and that particular uh, social class to be able to reconstruct it in such a vivid way. So. Yeah. Yeah, I was surprised. I was like, really? And then, as like for a best-selling novelist for that long to be anonymous, and yeah, apparently she is. Like, there's some theories about who it might be. I was half tempted to go on Reddit and do some deep dive to try to see if anyone's cracked the code. But then I was like, you know what? I actually don't mind it like this. (laughs) Give some more mystery. I hate (laughs) the the reveal is never satisfying as much as like the idea of the anonymity. So, yeah, quite liked. uh, I like that, and that she's at least managed to do it to a degree. I would hope from uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, as far as I know, I mean, there's definitely been different instances over the years of people being like, we know who it is. And like their publishers always just been like, no, <laughs> you're wrong. At one point, I believe that there was this kind of controversy that um, that she was actually a man, that it was a man. There was some famous book that had got really popular that ended, actually was written by two men. It was a crime novel, I think. And that created all this scandal. And then people were like, what if Elena Ferrante is a man? And then they were like, oh, it's this guy, this academic. It must be him because the writing style is similar or something. And so then the publisher and Elena, whatever her real name is, had to put out a statement being like, no. (laughs) Love that. (laughs) No. It's just... No. Like, this must be a man. <laughs> well, that's part of it too, right? Yeah. I mean, the, I've been part of this Women in Translation Month celebration for quite a few years now. Throughout the month of August, there's kind of a, a global push to read books by written by women in languages other than English, which have been translated, whether into English or into another second language, because something like only 30% of books which are translated into English are written by women. So that's a pretty huge discrepancy considering, you know, the, 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 in most languages anyway, there is kind of close to parity of publishing um, mm. between men and women. Not to say, you know, the other minority genders and, and things like that, which are, of course, in the minority as well. Mm. But so th- there's this kind of bigger conversation about who gets published, who gets translated, um, whose stories are read, whose stories are promoted. That's a kind of really big conversation in publishing, which I find really fascinating and try to engage with in a very intentional kind of way. And the idea of someone, you know, coming out and saying, no, this book is great. It's a work of genius. Therefore, it must have been written by a man is just, it's infuriating. (laughs) And it also is like kind of, a representative of a whole attitude across the publishing industry globally that makes getting works by women in translation published very difficult. See, I guess, I, and like, I don't, I don't definitely don't want to dismiss that element of it as well, but I feel like, uh, like I've always felt uh, of the arts in general, like firstly, mm. obviously, in terms of consumption, I feel like books in general are obviously more female than male in terms of who's buying the books and things like that. Oh, yeah. Um, that's not even up for question. But even, like, I've always thought, and you might be able to correct me on this, but of, of a lot of the arts in terms of on a large scale, it's probably one of the more equal in terms of representation where that issue isn't as significant, let's say, even though obviously it can always be – I'm not saying it's not there, but it's not as significant because like, even, even the fact that so many of the classic works of literature were written by women and it's not a written by women in a way where it's you know anyone's – doubting it or questioning it at all like from the victorian era but even further back it's like women have always been a very major part of publishing so i guess that's the only reason i would push like i i, I feel like it, i don't want to again dismiss the difficulties and the fact that it might not be completely even uh but also that you know there there, 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 there is a fair amount of pushing for women to be included and there always has been i feel like compared to a lot of cultural practices i suppose yeah i think so in some ways, yes, and in some ways, no. So I think if you look at the history of like the novel, to my understanding, very early on, the novel was considered a lesser form. So poetry was like the form that was, you know, the most prestigious, and novels was 
writing a novel or work of fiction was considered trash, basically. Mm. And so women wrote them. And because women wrote them and because women read them, they were considered like lesser literary forms. So maybe in terms of like volume of production and in your know, creative spirit, maybe there's equality, but in terms of like literary currency or like social currency or cultural currency, the value was significantly less. And then as novels then became something which became more popular and more valued culturally, then you start to see men dominating the publishing space in those things. And you see that with different genres as well over time, shifting between like gender balance. And I think it's probably true, like if you looked at the whole of like English language publishing, there probably is more women published than men. Um, I don't know the exact figures, but just because the volume of like, I guess, popular literature, which doesn't have the same cultural value as literary works, is heavily female dominated, like the romance and crime space, both of those which publish huge volumes and sell in huge volumes, um, does have a lot of women writing in those spaces. But like the fact that over the last sort of 10 years we've had to have something in Australia like the Stella Prize as a counterpoint to the overwhelming male domination of the Miles Franklin Award, the most prestigious literary prize in Australia, you know, I, I think that gives you a pretty good indication of um, the fact that it's still challenging. Though the Stella Prize released their report every year about publishing, and I think it's pretty close now in terms of books by women being reviewed in major publications in Australia, um, whereas when they started recording and evaluating and kind of researching on this, overwhelmingly the titles which were being reviewed in major literary publications in Australia were books by men. And so that flow-on effect influences what is sold, what's purchased, um, and what people are reading. Mm. So. And I, I like... And I do find that it, like, for some reason I feel like that would be the case even more so in Australia as <laughs> it would be much more structured. I don't know. Australia has got a lot of issues with reading that I feel like means that it's very easy to be siloed and for there to mm. be like three gatekeepers who decide everything here, unlike probably in other countries where it's at least a bit more spread out <laughs> who's reading and who's in charge of it. Yeah, definitely. So I guess the – well, look, either way, Eleanor, she's she's great. <laughs> <laughs> To go back that, I was going to ask though, uh, in relation to that, because you and you actually mentioned women in translation, it's something which I think I, I, I might have mentioned on this show before. But this is these books are written in Italian, yeah, and then they're translated across to English. Mm -hmm. So this is one of the things which I do find super fascinating, which I think it's hard for people to comprehend. But like just how much the person translating. <laughs> is doing just as important a job with these works always and having as much potentially an impact as the original writer. Like, I don't know, recently mm. uh, there was a lot of uh, news. Again, I love saying news. People listening to this are going to be like, what? That is not something I would have ever heard and is not news at all to me. But uh, the fact that the Odyssey had its first major translation by a female translator who then went Ooh. back to the Iliad and the Odyssey and they were saying how this really presented new elements to the text, which... Uh, was just thanks to that lens being applied. And again, people are going to be like, oh, what, they're changing? It's like, no, no, just literally just choice of words can really reframe how things are, which are also part of development from then till now as well. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So I guess the question I want to ask is who was doing the translating and like do you agree with that? Is there an impact? Can you speak Italian? You can tell me the comparison. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> so I definitely can't speak Italian um, aside from my primary school memories, which are terrible. Mm. So um, Anne Goldstein is the translator. She has translated, as far as I know, I think she's translated all of Elena Ferrante's works into English and has like written and I've seen her speak before about translation So, yeah, I I think it's a really big deal. And there's a bit of a push, which is slowly building momentum about trying to push to have the translators' names on the covers of translated works. So you will see it occasionally, especially with smaller publishers who kind of got on board with this idea that the translator shouldn't just be buried in the copyright information or on the inside pages, but actually the work of a translator is, is not just worthy of, but it's important that they are also on the cover that's kind of one push in a like on a publishing side to try and encourage publishers to say the name basically of the translators and so that's something that I've tried to do and there's quite a few others who've tried to do on Instagram is when we're reviewing books to make sure that we're saying who the translator is so naming them giving them the credit that they deserve for the work that they do but they definitely have a big influence and it's interesting that you mentioned that there's a new translation of the odyssey because i haven't heard about that but what i do know is that there's a new translation i think it's two years ago now of beowulf um, which is the first as far as i know the first translation by a woman by maria devana headley who i'm a huge fan of she wrote a book the mere wife which is a modern ish retelling of beowulf in which she published five or six years ago now and it's one of my all-time favorite books it's amazing it's just like really creepy and twisted but it takes this ancient tale and gives it a really interesting modern kind of framework and context and then she then has tackled the the translation of the original epic as well and just given it a whole different vibe and perspective which I think is just fascinating (laughs) um yeah I I I love it I mean I, I do try and read like a good proportion of my annual reading as being works in translation I think I usually sit about a quarter of what I read in a year as being translated work but really only because I put a particular focus on it like I am seeking out translated work wherever I can um, and trying to prioritize it to give myself different perspectives right to make sure that I'm reading outside of my my bubble you got exactly like you have to almost uh not artificially but like yeah you could naturally just sit in a bubble but it's like so you have to really actively try to push yourself as always like like with everything always <laughs> and it's really yeah. great to have that range yeah but i think you're right i think it is an active choice like i think if you're if you are reading for pleasure or for work or for personal development or whatever the reason is that you choose to read like everything that you read is like an investment of your time and you're making a big choice about how you're spending your attention. So I feel like we all kind of have a responsibility to be intentional about it. Yeah. yeah I mean, it, it, at least, yeah, at least to try a little bit. I agree. Definitely. I'm a big fan of that. But, I mean, it doesn't matter what you're reading. Like you can read the, <laughs> you can read the most highbrow or the most lowbrow stuff. I don't mind, but like be intentional about it. Right. <laughs> oh, no, it matters. It matters. All right. I'm sorry. I'm gatekeeping. <laughs> This is what literature in Australia needs right now. Someone gatekeeping. <laughs> no, look, I think, I, I, although I do say I, I started off being very much, yes, everyone reader, and I still am that, but I do, f- I feel like it's not nothing wrong with everyone having the idea in their head to maybe aspire, um, even though maybe that's not the right word, but to, to a little bit more complexity in their reading. So while I super support anyone reading anything, I do also at the same time think it would be nice and don't beat yourself up if you don't, but I feel like it's nothing wrong with having the goal being there of something a bit more substantive that, uh, in mm. what they're going for. And of course, don't let that stop you. Don't let me feel bad and read something, but I really feel like there's nothing wrong with actually saying, no, no, 
there is something more substantive to this that I would argue is better that it than yeah this level here. That's kind of that's how I feel, and I, I don't. <laughs> I sound so at risk of being some sort of <laughs> cultural snob, but I don't think there's anything wrong with saying it like that. I guess. You know? Yeah, I think I get you where you're coming from, but I think I would take it in a slightly different direction. And I would say if you're reading a particular genre and you really love it and that's your comfort zone and you only have so much time in a day or, you know, whatever it is, try and like look within that genre for more diversity. Like if you just read fantasy or science fiction, like say you only read science fiction, right? Look at what you're reading. Are you only reading books by dead white men? right? And if you are, what can you be reading that's written by, I don't know, a woman of colour like N.K. Jemisin? What, who else can you be reading who's within your like literary or genre comfort zone but might expand your perspective and maybe you're supporting, you know, an author or maybe look at someone like a contemporary Australian author as well. Maybe re- read Claire G. Coleman's work, speculative fiction space, or if you only read romance novels, for example, maybe instead of just reading romance novels by white American women, maybe you could read something by a Canadian Muslim uh, romance author, read Uzma Jalaluddin's books. I felt like you were referencing someone specific then, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I I promise you I'm not. There there are so many different people that could be referring to. Mm. You know, if you only read crime, there's heaps of different, like, amazing authors that you could be reading. There's, like, the... All of Natsuo Kirino's books or who else could you be reading? Like there's so many in literally any genre that you that is within your comfort zone and is within your like space that you like to read in. You can like branch out within that. You don't necessarily have to be going, all right, well, I'm going to read all of the Booker Prize nominated books this year because somebody who is knowledgeable about literature stuff says that they have the most cultural value like I just think if you're going to do that and that's not really the kind of book you like to read you're just not going to read anything Mm. you're going to buy these books because you think that they're important or they're going to give you some kind of insight but if they're not the thing you enjoy reading you're not going to read them you just go watch Netflix like (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay, look, that's a valid, that's a valid. Uh, valid <laughs> I think you can challenge yourself while also making reading an enjoyable experience. <laughs> you can still like, yeah, you can always still be comfortable, but also just stretch without, yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. I can appreciate that. And, and, and it's true. Like at this point in time in the world, there is top notch stuff from everywhere in everything. Like if you expand yeah. out. So yeah, no. We have, we have an amazing amount of choice. You just have to not just take the most obvious thing that's handed to you. And sometimes it does take a little bit of work, but there's so many people out there, not just me, but there's thousands and thousands of people who run bookstagram accounts or book talk accounts and, you know, all over social media, even local groups where you can talk to people, talk to librarians, talk to your local independent bookstore owners, like they know what's out there. And, you know, maybe it's not the biggest thing on the first shelf because it's not the thing that everyone's walking in the door and asking for. But, you know, there's people out there who can point you in the right direction. Uh, or send me a DM on Instagram. I'll help. <laughs> uh, hopefully someone chases you up on that. That'd be great. So was there a reason you, like, again, kind of connected to this in terms of the in-translation works, women in translation, or trying to focus on an international, like, pursuit with your reading? Was there any reason you do that, I guess? Like, apart, obviously, the good reason is you should because it's great to do that. But was there, like, a deciding thing that made you realize you weren't doing that enough or from the start you've always loved that? Was there anything like that? I mean, I think there's a couple of different parts to that. I think when I started babbling books and started kind of blogging and receiving advanced copies of books from publishers, and I started reading a little bit more as well, I kind of averaged about 60 or 70 books a year pretty much my whole life since I was a teenager anyway. The dream. <laughs> and so, but I did actually increase that a little bit. And I think I was up to like a hundred, hundred and something as my average for a few years there, Oof, which has dropped a- back down. <laughs> it's a lot. It's a is lot. That, right? but I mean, like, I- I've always had the view and like, sorry, <laughs> if this okay. is going off on a tangent, but I've always had the view that like I, anyone who's uh, probably about the limit, I would say, I would say is acceptable is about a hundred. Like anyone who starts showing off how they've read like 150 books or something. I always just have the view, feel that like, 
you're not taking it in. Like you, you're, you're treating it. You're treating books like a TikTok video. Like as in, it's just too much. Like as in, if it two a week seems like plenty, you know, to be taking it in and actually engaging with the work, I guess a little bit to be not just reading it and then skimming it and then not taking anything in. And I know that vibes are an important thing as well, but I've always felt it just doesn't seem, seems like too much. It just seems like too much. I think it totally depends on the person's lifestyle, right? Because I mean, when I've read a lot, like over a hundred books in a year, I've found that it's because I'm not watching TV and movies. I'm not really engaging with a lot of other kind of story formats. I was really pouring a lot of my free time and energy into books. It's also listening to loads of audiobooks. So I'm not kind of missing any moments. So like I'm doing grocery shopping, I'm walking the dog, I'm doing folding laundry. I'm listening to audiobooks and there's dozens of hours, if not more, in a week that, you know, is sort of time where, I don't know, maybe you just put on the TV and just have something mindless going on in the background. But instead, I've got my headphones in and, you know, I'm listening to someone tell me a story. So that's definitely part of it. But yeah, I think it just depends. And it depends on what you're reading too, because if you're reading shorter novels or you're reading a lot of young adult fiction, for example, that's not super plot heavy. I think you can definitely read stuff like in terms of volume and engage with it. I know the year I read the most, which was like 124 books, I think. (laughs) Yeah, but quite a few of those were graphic novels. And I love graphic novels and graphic memoirs as well. Um, So like nonfiction works, but with illustrations. And so, yeah, they're, they're definitely quicker to read in some ways, but I still feel like you're engaging with, you know, a story in a similar way. So I don't know. I think it's just down to the person, but I mean, if it makes you happy, it makes you happy. I've never really been one for like competitive reading, but the reason that I brought it up is because I started to track my reading with a lot more nuance. So I'd always track like how many books I was reading in a year through having a Goodreads account, which I don't have anymore because they're owned by Amazon another story for another day but anyway I now have a spreadsheet but in my spreadsheet I tag different things so I was tagging like the gender of the author the country that they're from the language the book was originally written in um, and I tag a lot more things now like whether it's written by a person of color or whether there's a queer main character a few different things like that I'm just kind of getting a handle on like where my reading is at and what mm-hmm. things are kind of standing out to me And when I started doing that early on, I did notice that the countries that dominated my reading were the US, primarily the UK, and then Australia. So English-speaking countries, but I was really surprised by how much the US dominated my reading list because I didn't feel like it did. And then I was looking at the numbers and I was just like, yeah, okay, I don't know if I'm comfortable with this. And then I was looking at the breakdown of like men versus women that I was reading and I was like, this is a lot more men than I thought. It wasn't like totally skewed out of proportion. I think it was sitting at like 60 or 70% men, something like that. But that didn't really feel like it reflected the stories that I wanted to be reading. <laughs> and so I wasn't really making like conscious choices. I was just kind of picking things up um, as they kind of filtered in. So um, I started to become a little bit more intentional with what I was choosing and where I was choosing to spend my time and my mental energy I guess but I'd also read quite a few works in translation up to that point but they were almost all men and that was when I like kind of noticed that so I studied Japanese since I was in high school studied at university as well and spent a fair bit of time in Japan over the years and had often picked up translated works while I was over there my Japanese is nowhere near good enough to be able to read like a full novel the kind of novel that I would really like to sink my teeth into but big fan of Japanese like crime and thriller fiction in particular um, but had read some of the literary stuff like Murakami and and so on and I was like why haven't I ever read any like books in translation by Japanese women like I'm sure they're out there and so that was kind of the start of my my journey was that I wanted to read more Japanese fiction but I was like why have I only read fiction by men like not to say that like I mean, I'm not a huge fan of Murakami, Haruki Murakami. There's more than one <laughs> anymore. But anymore? because did he do something? Well, more? no, no, he didn't do anything in particular. I just think <laughs> that like my reading horizons expanded, and then when I reflected back on his work, and I've I've read some of his like newer works in between when I've been reading some of the like 
truly outstanding contemporary fiction by Japanese women that I've kind of gone, eh, yeah, I mean, like, he's okay. But, like, if he was the only author who was being published, you know, from, like, a, a Japanese kind of literary perspective, I would have been like, great, this is cool. This is giving me an insight into this kind mm. of culture and contemporary experience. But I don't know. I just don't think he really delivers that. Yeah. <laughs> Not compared to some of the other authors that I've read. Yeah, I think that was really what started it. That was an extremely long-winded and rambling way to get to that point. But <laughs> <laughs> it's, I, was, I was like trying to, uh, as we we're talking, I'm like, okay, remember that we got to talk about the what spurred it, and then you managed to get you got there very smoothly. Actually, it was it was so organic. I'm like, wait, she's. She's good. She's, <laughs> she knows what she's doing. I'm in safe hands here. <laughs> so I think there's like loads of other, I mean, I've already mentioned Natsuo Kirino. I think she's amazing. She writes like a lot of like thriller, kind of tense, observational kind of fiction, which is great. I love, I love her work so much. But there's so many others who I think that like, yeah, everyone should be reading. Mm. Sayaka Murata is one. Who else? Hiromi Kawakami. Uh, anyway, there's there's loads. <laughs> yeah, again, people can ask send things in the world, or they can look it up. Just like yeah, the well known people figures from that. Um, yeah, good country. luck doing the notes of all the books we've mentioned. Look, uh, you've really screwed me there. I'll be honest. <laughs> that's going to be a lot of work, but I'll get there. The I just like to put the show notes in. No, and I do appreciate also the geekiness of that spreadsheet. That's exceptional. That's 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 some serious nerdiness there. Like we are now I deep will in admit- the niche. Deep in the niche, I will admit, yeah. I have it open in the next tab. So, Of course, yeah. That makes sense. It's got to be handy. I've, uh, in terms of record, though, mm. I'm sorry, I am still on Goodreads just because it's there. Although there are actually a lot of competitors now, if you've looked into it. that Yeah, so if, very, you want, if you want one that's really great and that you can easily transfer from um, Goodreads, like it will take all of your data and then like import it into his story graph. They're bookstagrammers who started it and they're super great and I love what they're doing. Yeah, super support them. I don't personally use it because I love my spreadsheet, but if I was <laughs> going to use an app, it would be Storygraph. <laughs> okay, that's uh, that's exactly. I wanted this interview to involve a shout out to a, a competitor. That's what that's what I like instead of Goodreads because yeah, it's just for me. It's just like it's just there and it's just the classic uh, inertia thing. So, but the more mm. that people can get to somewhere else, the better. I would say. Um, before we start off, I guess one last thing, and this is almost a, a bit broader because we've been as literary focused as I guess I always expected with this. Um, considering your career now covers like, we could even just talk about that for ages, like in terms of what it's like doing the more varied stuff, like essentially self-employed in, in that stuff. Like firstly, so hard to manage your time. Like I'm impressed being able to read books whilst also trying to do something which is so obviously taking up so much of your time just even in terms of from the community point of view engagement, but also aligning up all your gigs and lining up all that stuff. That's just it's a lot of time. So um, I tip my hat to you for that. Is that hard to manage? I mean, I guess in some ways it is, but I think for me the reading has never been, like it's never a chore. Like for me that's my way to switch off. Even if, um, you know, I am reviewing or something like that eventually or I'm creating content around a specific book, the actual reading is for my enjoyment <laughs> and I still find it enjoyable. It's very rare that I get paid to actually read a book. I mean, I think there's probably been maybe two or three occasions where I've been commissioned to write a review for an online magazine, a books and publishing magazine commissioned me a couple of times to write reviews. And that's the only time I would necessarily say I've been like paid to write a review or paid to write read a book essentially mm. <laughs> um, and honestly the amount that you get per word of a 150 or 200 word review does not really compensate <laughs> you for the time you spent reading the book so really like when I'm creating content for babbling books it's it's really just a it's a hobby it's a personal project and it's an opportunity for me to improve my photography skills or learn video editing and all of the different things that it's kind of given me that opportunity to learn which has been amazing and you know really really great I do collaborate with small businesses quite frequently some of those are paid opportunities some of those are just like me wanting to use my platform to give kind of opportunity and exposure to other fellow Australian small business owners who I believe in and whose work I think is really amazing so that's kind of part of what I do but really the the business side doesn't have a huge amount to do with the 
books specifically. And so that was very intentional, like to separate out babbling books and minor and Maud and to give them their own identities and give them, though I'm one person who kind of runs both things simultaneously, they kind of express different parts of me and different ways that I want to engage with the community. So babbling books is very much about me engaging with fellow readers and sharing recommendations, you know, sharing the kinds of things that I engage with about stories. And Minor and Maud is really more about encouraging and nurturing people's creativity in the way in which, you know, I've been so supported and nurtured um, in my own creative journey by other people and encouraged to tell my own story through like art and collage and writing and journaling I really wanted to share that love and that like outlet of self-expression that's been so valuable to me with other people. So I think they serve slightly different purposes in my life, but separating them out does like give me a little bit of flexibility, but I'm one person. (laughs) So there is heaps of crossover in terms of when I'm managing my time, I'm often like listening to a book while I'm doing stock take or, you know, I'm updating the website and, you know, maybe I'm creating content for babbling books, but I'm also filming stuff for Minor and Maud at the same time. Or like sometimes I'm on calls talking about like workshop pitches and things like that with different libraries while I'm also making something with my hands. (laughs) So there's definitely (laughs) definitely lots of crossover there. But I mean, I definitely don't think I've got it perfect. It's an ongoing evolution, as I think anyone who's self-employed will tell you, like you just you figure it out as you go along and sometimes you mess it up and, um, you know, things you get pulled too far in one direction. But I think it kind of self-corrects somehow. It has to because at the end of the day, you got to get everything done. Yeah. And if it doesn't get done, then, well, maybe it wasn't so important. It's <laughs> <laughs> always a good way to frame it, I think, yeah. Um, and that actually ties us back to maybe to do a nice loop on this because you did mention at the start this creative journaling element mm-hmm. of the meaner and more thing so i did i meant to ask you back then but we've gone off on so many tangents since then so it's nice you brought it back up at the end would you have recommendations like because i actually i actually am a bit of a journalist myself and i started off for years doing it because i'm such a uh, <laughs> practicality focused person sometimes but i was like i just want to remember things better because my memory is garbage so i would always be like how my day went and just like it was very uh clinical there was just like a list of things and i realized looking back because then i'll go back and look at it and i'll be like this is boring and also not actually that memorable to even helpful with my stated goals i actually realized bringing in my own emotional element Mm. to it but what i don't do is really try to be creative as much as like express whatever i'm feeling so i'm actually not phrasing things i'm not putting effort in because i'm just like ah it's because the end of the day i'm just always like nah more important just to get out what's inside and it's quite messy i guess is what i would say compared to writing with more intention. Is that kind of what you're talking about with that or is that something different? Yeah, I think I have a lot of different ways that I approach journaling depending on what I need in my life at that time. And there's a couple of things that I would suggest if you're like wanting to do something that's a little bit more creative or gives you a, I don't know, maybe like a better outlet than just like, this is the thing that I did and then I did that other thing or I'm feeling really upset because such and such at work is such a pain in the ass. Like, you know, that's not really, it's not really uncovering the things inside us that we're struggling with. Like ultimately it's probably not about that person at work who's a bit of an ass. Like it's really about something else. So there's a few things you could try. One of them is using, instead of just like sitting down looking at a blank page and writing down what you think you're supposed to write, um, is using journaling prompts. There's loads online of different prompts that you can use to start yourself off. But a really good friend of mine, Jess Leondu, she has a business called Archley's or Archley's Book of Books is her product, which is like a, a reading journal. So you can actually like write down reviews of in a structured way of books that you've read. But she also has these like little card boxes. I mean, it it kind of reminds me of Pictionary where you like pull out the little cards and they have little prompts on them. But they're specifically designed to prompt deeper reflection. And her whole ethos is about um, helping people to have better conversations with themselves. And I think they're a really great starting point if that kind of I don't know what you would call it, like less prescriptive kind of journaling isn't something you've tried before, is it feels quite supportive to have 
um, a prompt that someone else has thought of. And, you know, she's worked really closely with people who um, work in therapy and things like that to develop these questions. So they're not all super deep and meaningful, but they're kind of prompted to make you think a little bit differently about yourself or your day or your goals, or your aspirations or your past, your I don't know, your values and things like that. So they're a super great starting point if you want something that's um, very, very accessible. Like you literally can't go wrong. (laughs) You can't go wrong with that. The other thing that I would suggest if you're a creative in, in, I guess, your work practice as well as your personal practice would be Julia Cameron's very famous book, The Artist's Way. Have you heard of it? Yeah, I've heard of it. Yeah, Yeah. so it's a classic. Um, I don't agree with all of her ideas about creativity and the ways in which she kind of pushes you to uh, act on them. But there's some really valuable stuff in that book. And there's a reason why it's kind of been the cornerstone of like creative thought for a really long time. And one of her suggestions is morning pages, which I feel like every creative person has heard about and none of us seem to execute consistently. (laughs) But when I've actually done morning pages properly, it's been super helpful and I've always seen the results of it in my creative output. And I think as well in just in my mental health in general. But basically, if anyone hasn't heard of it is the idea that first thing in the morning before you do anything else you sit down and you write three full pages regardless of the size of your notebook so if you want to cheat pick a really small notebook um, three pages by hand that is just a whatever comes to your mind so it's free form don't worry about sentences don't worry about spelling don't worry about grammar don't worry about being profound just like whatever's in your head. And for me, sometimes that's just three pages of, I really don't want to do this. This is boring. I just want to eat my breakfast. Like, but usually once you've got to like the second page of writing that out and over and over again, you get so bored that something clicks, like something profound will come out and you'll be like, oh, <laughs> that's what was really sitting under that discomfort with sitting down to do this practice today. So I think it's a very valuable tool. I cannot say that I do it myself all of the time, but when I've been particularly struggling in like with my creativity, I've always found it really useful to lean on. Yeah, look, I uh, I actually am with you. I, I tried it. It's just the time. It's just because I, I, maybe I'm a slow writer, but yeah, three pages because A4 it would take really long, like half an hour or whatever in the morning. It's like you have to really have structured your day nicely to take that into account properly. So You need a smaller notebook. <laughs> A4 is too big, isn't it? It's way too big. It's way too big. It's way too big. (laughs) All this time. (laughs) This makes so much sense now. Let me tell you, she got crazy towards the end. (laughs) It is is funny to anyone. Anyone, I would recommend it as well uh, because this is a technique across like a lot of creative pursuits. I know in acting they say it as well. If you just sit there and write for like three, four pages and you just keep going and you force yourself to keep going, shit will get weird. Like you will go to places you weren't because you just can't help it. Like you just... It's, it almost comes out in ways you're like, ah, what the hell is that sentence? It's uh, yeah, it's really fascinating. So I 100% agree with that, starting the whole day with that. Yeah. I mean, how often do we take the time to sit with ourselves mm. in that way with no distractions, with no like other media, with no other inputs, like just to sit with ourselves? Mm. Like not that often. No. And uh, it's it's weird. <laughs> it's, it's good though. It's very it is very insightful. Okay, we've gone on far too long. Um, so I'm gonna have to call it off there. <laughs> Thank you so much for being on the show. Um, I guess just for one more shout out, even though you've we've mentioned a few times now. But if anyone wants to follow you, uh, where can they kind of find you and follow you? They can find me on Instagram as Babbling Books, um, and I'm also on Instagram and TikTok when I ever post as Minor and Maud. Mm-hmm. Great. Yes. Uh, Book Talk apparently is actually doing a lot for the public industry, I've heard. So that's nice. Good to be a part of that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So thank you so again so much for being on. Um, yeah. Thanks. Thanks, Tyson. Thanks for listening. If you want to help support this show and all the other shows we do here at Sans Pants Radio, then why not subscribe to SansPantsPlus.com. For as little as $5 a month, you can have access to a whole bunch of bonus shows and content. Once again, that's SansPantsPlus.com. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.